episode of Healing Ground Movement. Um, this guest I love that I got to met th- meet through a really um, kismic kind of opportunity. I was tabling at the El Dorado um, Run for the Cure Cancer Care, and um, Jerry Roach won our giveaway bag. And until that moment, I didn't actually know who this man was and all that he had accomplished among um, the the peaks in the mountains of Colorado and around the world. And since then, I've learned an incredible amount about his history. Um, Jerry Roach moved to Boulder, Colorado in 1954 and started climbing rocks and mountains shortly thereafter. After um, over six decades later, he is, continues pursuing his mountaineering passion with all the energy that he can muster. Jerry's career as a world-class mountaineer includes, and this list is extensive, so here are just some of the highlights I pulled, uh, climbing Mount Everest, being the second person to climb the highest peaks on each continent, the first person to climb the 10 highest peaks in North America, and the list goes on and on. Uh, He has also written a library of resources for rock climbing, hiking, and mountaineering. So welcome. Thank you for joining us today, Jerry. Thanks for having me. It's fun (laughs) to be here to talk. Well, and I always like to start, especially because you started climbing at such a young age. Uh, When was movement first fun for you? Well, we moved to Boulder because my dad had a research grant and he worked at the, what is then called the National Bureau of Standards. It's now NIST. And I went to school, Mm -hmm. uh, started in the sixth grade couldn't help looking up at the flat irons mm-hmm. above Boulder. And of course, being a kid, I wondered <laughs> if a kid could get up on those rocks somehow. <laughs> well, me and my school buddy, Jeff, did just that. It's lucky we didn't kill ourselves because we knew absolutely, basically nothing you about climbing. Throw yourselves on the rocks? <laughs> we, all we knew about climbing was what we had seen in these goofball cartoons <laughs> where there's some guy hanging way up high on the top of an overhang with a rope hanging uselessly (laughs) through space and he had some hammer thing dangling Mm -hmm. and some stupid caption so we knew we needed a rope and we knew we needed a hammer thing (laughs) well the hammer was easy we got that from my dad's toolkit the rope we stole my mom's clothesline (laughs) which was a cotton rope (laughs) we had no idea what to do with any of this we went up onto the second flat iron and got out on the rock where it was exposed. We're in our cork-soled street shoes, scared ourselves to pieces, managed to escape alive. And I said, I'll never go there again. Well, of course, the next weekend we were there again. (laughs) We were kids. (laughs) And we got braver and braver and got into more and more trouble. Finally, we met some uh, University of Colorado students who were older and wiser. And they told us, you have to go to see Alice Hollybar at the then fledgling Hollybar store, which was in the basement of their home at 1215 Grandview. Mm -hmm. So we went there. Alice ushered us in, heard our story through an absolute fit, (laughs) said, you need a real rope, you need pitons, you need this book called Belaying the Leader. And I said, we don't have money for all that. The <laughs> <laughs> only money we had was from our paper routes. She, extra- she would not let us go until she extracted a promise that we'd go to the Army Surplus store and get a better rope. She sold us a, a couple of pitons and a couple of carabiners and the book. <laughs> and, of course, we had my dad's hammer from the toolkit. So Jeff and I went home with our stash and we flipped for who was going to read the book 
that night under the covers mm-hmm. by headlight and by a flashlight. He won the toss, and so he read the book. The next day we go climbing. We get up there, and he says, well, just feed the rope out. And so I did. I came, and he hollered for me to come up. And I came around the corner, and I saw him, and he had the rope around his waist, and he was pulling it in as I climbed. And I said, what in the heck are you doing? And he said, mm-hmm. I'm belaying you. <laughs> I read the book. <laughs> and already and your life was a little bit safer. <laughs> and it went from there. All of this was secret. Mm-hmm. We couldn't reveal this to our parents. They'd ground us. Yeah. Well. So what was it about the climbing that made you keep wanting to go back for more? The excitement. Yeah. <laughs> the <laughs> adrenaline point, rush of it all? It was the excitement. Mm-hmm. Well, our technique for sneaking out, I could get out of my bedroom window pretty easily. But mm-hmm. Jeff had a different, tougher deal. So we tie a string to his big toe and hang it out his window. Then I would sneak up to the back of the house at oh dark 30, <laughs> tug on the string to wake him up. Without a sound, he would pass out the pack, which he had hidden under his bed, and climb out the window. So we did this a number of times. One morning, we did it, and we're walking up the street in front of the house. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff's mom had bionic ears. She heard our boots on the pavement. About two blocks later, Mr. Wheeler shows up in his bathrobe in the family Oldsmobile <laughs> <laughs> and says, where are you lads going? We said, oh, just for a little hike. He said, with a rope? <laughs> so we had to put the rope over our shoulder. Mm-hmm. We were busted yeah. <laughs> and grounded. Ah, uh, for a couple of weeks, three but weeks. Well, maybe deterred. maybe it was more than a month and a half or something. We thought our climbing career was over. Well, being decent parents, they said, well, you can climb, but you've got to get proper instruction. Mm-hmm. You can't just do this with, with a cartoon in your head. So we got hooked up with the Rocky Mountain Rescue. Mm-hmm which was quite active in those days, mostly university students, some older guys. And they really taught us literally the ropes. (laughs) We did lots of complicated things that a lot of climbers never do. We lowered litters. We raised litters with people in them up vertical cliffs. We did Tyrolean traverses where we would send a litter across a big gap of air. We learned the knots. We learned the system of climbing and we got pretty good because we were kids mm-hmm. <laughs> determined and focused <laughs> and uh jeff and i became known as the squirrels <laughs> and that uh, went from there we started then getting into el dorado canyon where there's tougher climbs we'd hitch rides up to long's peak and do even tougher climbs mm-hmm. Went on trips to 14ers, and it just grew from there. Pretty soon we're climbing all over the state. And so with all of this progression and movement from climbing, what did you, um, what did you and Jeff take away as far as, you know, you learned, this, you started off with a cartoon in your head, and then you yeah. got the actual foundational skills. How did that right. inform your, your passion and creativity around good, the climbs? Good question. The, one of the students that took a special interest in us was Prince Wilman. Mm-hmm. 
and he became our number one mentor. And he told us a lot about mm -hmm. climbing safety. He also wasn't afraid to get into some of the more spiritual aspects of climbing, why mm -hmm. and all of that good stuff. He was our mentor. I think it was 1958 or nine, on a spring break trip, he and some others went to Utah mm -hmm. to get some sun and some warmth. They had a couple extra days. They came back and decided to climb Long's Peak by the east face. And up they went. Uh-oh, big spring storm mm -hmm. hit. They were way up high. They had to keep going up. They couldn't retreat. They got to the summit. It's a huge story for the time. On the way down, the three of them, Prince Dave Jones and the woman Jane Van Dixon, they spent a miserable night huddled in a non-cave. Prince's hands were shot. He hadn't mm -hmm. brought decent mittens. They had just come from Utah. They mm -hmm. weren't prepared for a winter storm on Long's Peak. Prince ordered Dave and Jane to get on out and try and save themselves because mm -hmm. he knew he couldn't help them. A little fast forward, both uh, Dave and Prince died. Oh, wow. Jane amazingly survived. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn the details of how until about a quarter century later. Mm -hmm. It's another story. Uh, but my preacher had fallen from the pulpit, mm -hmm. literally. And it embedded in my brain how easy it is to die in the mountains. Yeah. You make one mistake or miss one step, you can be gone. Mm -hmm. And I think if I could thank Prince, <laughs> his episode, I probably, I'm not sure I'd be alive today if I hadn't lived through that episode. Because mm -hmm. it taught me the fragility of the human body. Mm -hmm. The human body is amazing. It can do things that boggle the mind. You can run around the world, you can do this, you can do that. And you can also be gone in one second. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's a quite a knife edge that it, we live. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's a delicate balance of, and that's what amazes me so much. Given your your history, your resume here of all the peaks that you've summited, all of these, um, like you said, the, the amazing things that the human body can do. Um, but at the same time, it, it sort of sounds like it needs to come with that humility right. of. You know, there, there's no invincibility in any of these things. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, and especially if you're young. Mm -hmm. I think when you're young, you're invincible. I think the equation is, is a little bit backwards. <laughs> when we're young and we have the most life to lose, mm -hmm. we take the biggest chances. When you get older and older and older, you have less <laughs> life to lose, but you mm -hmm. get more and more careful. Yeah. But that's when you should maybe take the big chances. Now, that's kind of a joke, but mm -hmm. it's something to think about. The, I guess the punchline is when you're young, you're invincible. Mm -hmm. And you do take chances. And a lot of young athletes kill themselves, especially mm -hmm. in the mountains. And now we've got extreme sports in all venues. Mm -hmm. People doing flips on motorcycles and you on and on and on. Not everybody makes it. Yeah. If you're lucky, you only get hurt, and then you can <laughs> learn from that and recover and 
carry on. But it's a really um, important thing that you highlight there is that we have, especially you know, the X Games and all the things that are coming into the Olympics and these yeah. um, you know, death-defying moments, but that's, that's just what we see. That's what's televised as the ones that have defied death. And right. You only we, hear we don't about see the, the others. You only hear about the heroes. Mm -hmm. in, in the high-end climbing world, people take incredible chances mm -hmm. to do a huge climb. If mm -hmm. they make it, they're heroes. You hear yeah. all about it. If they die trying, well, mm -hmm. it's in a report somewhere, but you don't rever them. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's not a good thing that the media does to rever somebody that takes ridiculous chances mm -hmm. and somehow makes it. The sensationalism of it all. So yeah, when you think of yeah. something like, oh, what was the movie that just came out? Free Solo. Free Solo. And, and that sort of ambitious behavior. Yes, I loved the film. Um, I would add, there's a big, big bunch of chatter out there right now. Does that film encourage people to do free soloing? Mm -hmm. A little, but not much. If you're smart, you actually look at what Alex Honnold did to prepare for that climb. Mm -hmm. He rehearsed every move on the wall. Mm -hmm. The hard moves he rehearsed 20, 30, 40, 50 times mm -hmm. until he felt solid that he could do it without the rope. He has a great quote. Somebody asked him, what do you do when you get an adrenaline rush? He says, adrenaline rush? Mm -hmm. No, I don't get adrenaline rushes. If an adrenaline rush happens, something is really, really wrong. Oh, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> because he's so calm and mm -hmm. under control. Yeah. Not everybody can do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's a really good point, and I like that you highlighted that the, the savvy watcher, the savvy listener, is going to watch the preparation. Yes. And that is, again, it's the juxtaposition of that heroic effort and these people who do death-defying things. That's what's sensationalized. It is the final act. Right. Not, not all the preparation. Of, exactly. All of right, the right, right. aggressively detailed things that you do. <clears throat> yes. If mm -hmm. I... If I talked about all the preparation details, you'd fall asleep mm -hmm. because it would go on and on for hours. <laughs> it wouldn't be very <laughs> well, interesting. <laughs> there's nothing sensational about it, right. but that's the work that creates a sensation. Right, and lately I've pushed a little step farther. I, all of these great accomplishments start with dreams mm -hmm. in your head. You have a dream to climb Everest. You have a dream to free solo El Cap. The conversation starts there. Mm -hmm. How do you convert wild, impossible dreams <laughs> into re safe reality? It's a big transition. What did that look like for you? Because, of course, you have gone up Everest. and Well, Everest... When it started, it started in 1953 when I found the Life magazine touting mm -hmm. Hillary and Tenzing on Everest. It was on my parents' bed. Mm -hmm. I was 10, 10 years old. I said, and I, the, the question was of, that came out back then was, well, which of the two stepped on top first? Oh, mm -hmm. well, I got to know which <laughs> was first. Hillary wouldn't answer the question. <laughs> he said we were... We were together. Yeah. My dad had a good answer, and he wasn't a climber, but he 
responded to that question. He said, when two men are joined by a rope, they are as one. <laughs> and at 10 years old, yeah. I wondered, what is this activity that is so powerful that a measly rope can make people as one? And I started with that mm-hmm. and went from there. So I was dreaming about Everest from 10 years old on. Wow. It was an impossible dream for most of the years. Mm-hmm. The first American trip went in 1963. They had National Geographic funding them. Big expedition, a lot of money. And they put six people on top. Hooray. Uh, One person did die. Mm -hmm. Not hooray. You've got to talk about that, too, because Mm -hmm. that's part of the cost. Jake Breitenbach died in the icefall early in the trip. Mm -hmm. And... I went in 1976, 10 years later, we had a chance to go out of the blue. It was a, it's a whole story, it's in my book. <laughs> uh, we had a chance at a permit. Mm-hmm. We pursued it. It was a big pursuit. Back then, you had to get the one and only permit for the peak in that given year. Oh, wow. We got the permit. We went in the fall, post-monsoon of 1976. We had built a house of cards. We said, we're going. Mm -hmm. We got all the gear. We got all the food. We made all the preparations, Mm -hmm. assuming success, all that good stuff. We didn't have any money. (laughs) (laughs) It's like everything except for how to get there. (laughs) Finally, at the 11th hour, ABC Sports kicked in to make a film. (laughs) television. That's where the money is. And we got our money and we went. Two guys made it up. I wasn't one of the two guys. It was a complicated set of circumstances. Here's an interesting story. Mm -hmm. Our Sherpa Siddhar Pasankami, PK for short, Mm -hmm. wonderful man. He ruled the Sherpas with an iron hand. He was (laughs) super highly respected Mm -hmm. because he was older. The Sherpas know how to respect their elders, something we are not very good at. Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Toward the summit time, oops, PK's mother died down in Namche Bazaar. Well, there's a deep belief in the Sherpa culture that you have to be with the spirit within 48 hours Mm -hmm. because the spirit's otherwise taking off and you missed it. As soon as PK got the word, he dashed out of camp, roared down the valley. Mm -hmm. The rest of the Sherpas suddenly were without their leader. They took it as a bad omen. And they basically came off the mountain in droves. They quit. Bad bad omens overrule logic (laughs) and even money. So the Sherpas poured off the mountain. The two guys made it just barely, but that was it. There was Mm -hmm. no chance for a second assault. And down we came. At least no one died. Yes. Except PK's mother, but that was (laughs) not directly related to the expedition. But uh, the expedition was affected by (laughs) an outside event. Mm Well, and that's a really interesting takeaway again is that we see, you know, these these heroic efforts and think that they are isolated and they are the work of one person. Mm. 
when you really do have so many circumstances around it or, or when your mentor um, died on the mountain, there was the circumstances yes. of where he had been and where he's coming from in the spring storm. And people who aren't from Colorado um, may not appreciate that we don't really get our snow in winter like the rest of the country. We mm-hmm. get our blizzards in the spring yes. and they can you know, bury us for, for weeks at a time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, in Nepal and the, mm-hmm. the high mountains in general, it's a marriage of cultures. Mm-hmm. We don't understand <laughs> Eastern cultures. To this day, we don't understand them very well. Yeah. And uh, we need to work mm-hmm. at understanding them better. Quick story from uh, 76. Uh, Rick Ridgway, Chris Chandler, and a Sherpa were in the ice fall working on mm-hmm. the route. And the block, a big block that they were standing on, shifted. <laughs> Bad news. Yeah. At least it didn't completely collapse. But in the moment, it was a moment of panic. Mm-hmm. Rick and Chris, with Western Logic, went charging to get off of the block. Mm-hmm. Western Logic, if the, thing, if the thing <laughs> you're standing on is not good, get off of it. Yeah. The Sherpa, the rope came tight. What's going on? Mm-hmm. The Sherpa was desperately reaching into his packet of blessed rice, mm-hmm. throwing it over his left shoulder, chanting the prayer, Om Madni Padme Hum. To him, that was salvation. Yeah. Eastern logic. <laughs> so the two logics were in direct conflict <laughs> on this block. The rope was tight. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a period of confusion there. Yeah. But after the Sherpa had said his prayers, he calmly walked off the block. Eastern mm-hmm. logic seemed to have prevailed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that even in emergency, that doesn't necessarily constitute a stage of urgency. That some right. of the better success might come through that when, was it, when calmer heads prevail. Mm-hmm. Well, in those older days, the most the val- most of the valleys had cantilevered bridges, which were built mm-hmm. by hand. Mm-hmm. They'd stack rocks and put planks out, and finally bridge across the gap with the planks between the two cantilevers. Mm-hmm. They would use that bridge until it collapsed. That's how they knew it mm-hmm. was time to build a new one. It was <laughs> when it actually collapsed. It wasn't yeah. when some engineer said, mm, it's going to collapse, you better fix it. Yeah. No. Usually, somebody was on the bridge and they died. Mm-hmm. But that was part of life. Mm-hmm. If it's your day to die, it's your day to die, and there's absolutely nothing you can do to change that. Mm-hmm. That's the Eastern view. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting <laughs> view of acceptance around that. It, and yeah. and when you talk back to the beginning about um, understanding the fragility of life, that as a general philosophy of when it's your day to die, it's your day to die, you carry that fragility around with you, I would assume. Right, right. Yeah. I tell people I have a one-liner for just about everything. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of my goofball one-liners is I have no plans for dying. Mm-hmm. People say, Western people say, well, what do you mean? You're going to yeah. die. And I say, yeah, but I have no plans. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't. I, I don't have an appointed time here. Snap <laughs> it in my calendar. <laughs> I like that. That's wonderful. Yeah. 
<laughs> so with everything that you've done, and certainly we've talked about sort of the over-sensationalizing of heroic gestures and having climbed Everest but not summiting, what does success look like to you in your climbing career? What are those moments that you hold on to as, you know, your point well, of pride? I went, so having <laughs> failed on Everest in 1976, <laughs> I, was, I was shattered. I had <laughs> physically failed in my endeavor. Seven years later, I <laughs> got another chance in 83, went <laughs> back and made it. <laughs> I went through an interesting transformation in those seven years. In 1976, I was probably as, as physically strong as I've ever been. <laughs> I was young, I was, I trained like a maniac, I was fit. Mm -hmm. In 83, the turn essentially was I became more spiritual about it. Mm -hmm. I was a little less fit, I was older, <laughs> still fit enough, mm -hmm. but I had a more directed path in my mind <laughs> that helped. So what did the preparation feel like that was different between those two summits or summit attempts? Yeah. In 83, leading up to 83, I did more and more visualization. Mm -hmm. I would, in my brain, this is even before the 83 trip came to pass, I would say, well, suppose I'm at the South Call and a big wind blows our tents completely mm -hmm. off down the backside into Tibet thousand feet down mm -hmm. oh my god we survive what are we gonna do mm -hmm. well i would then think about it and rehearse how i was going to survive that ca catastrophe and mm -hmm. then march on to the summit uh, everybody can visualize the last 10 steps to the summit or everybody can visualize and another good example is coming out of the tunnel in the Olympic marathon yeah. <laughs> to, the, to the stadium where everyone's yeah. waiting and cheering and you run around the lap and you win the Olympic marathon. It's mm -hmm. easy to visualize coming out of the stadium, but the race is won way before that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you have to visualize the catastrophes, mm -hmm. the bad things. So I did. <laughs> I visualized all kinds of horrible things and some modestly horrible things. And I just, in my mind, figured out how to survive all those things and go on to the summit. Mm -hmm. um, so I visualized the last steps, not to the tippy top, but to the south summit, the mm -hmm. fault summit, where you can finally see the final ridge to mm -hmm. the summit. That's a great moment because you're close, but mm -hmm. no, you're not there. One of my lines is, almost there is not the same as there. Yes. <laughs> close counts in horseshoes and grenades. <laughs> yeah. So when we actually did come up to the south summit and I saw that view, mm -hmm. it was a great moment because I thought, wow, I've waited seven years now I'm only a little over an hour from the summit. Mm -hmm. Later, people talked to me and they said, oh, my God, when you saw that view, didn't it look really far away? <laughs> I said, no, it looked really close. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely a glass half full perspective right there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And up we went. And uh, a lot of details to that ascent. But uh, five of us made it, two without supplemental oxygen. Mm -hmm. The Sherpa Angrita and Larry Nielsen, the American, first mm -hmm. American, without oxygen. Wow. And we came down without any supplemental oxygen. Mm -hmm. We had, 
we were on our own. We didn't have the support that people have today. Mm-hmm. Our nearest support was 8,000 feet down at wow. Camp 2. We were on our own. Yeah, that sounds like it. Yeah. <laughs> so I can say I descended Everest without supplemental oxygen. Very impressive. <laughs> whatever that, well, whatever that means. Well, you got me impressed with what is going. <laughs> so fast forward to today mm-hmm. with all the interest in crowds on Everest and mm-hmm. on Colorado's 14ers, so yeah. a similar increase in popularity. What's driving that? That's a good question. A number of things. Increased population, mm-hmm. increased access. Everest is accessible because the Sherpas will fix the route and string a rope, literally mm-hmm. from base camp to the summit. We didn't have that. Oxygen equipment has gotten better. Mm-hmm. You can carry, for the same weight we carried, you can get almost twice the oxygen now. That, and it's all about oxygen up there. Oh, I bet. Oxygen is the most uh, ignored element that w- we humans have. Try holding your breath, see how far you get. <laughs> a minute, two, yeah. ten? No, not very long. Not going to last very long at all. <laughs> so it makes it that much more accessible, I mean, and, and the cost effectiveness of getting it because you don't have to carry the giant tanks. And right. <laughs> so the mountain hasn't changed, but the equipment has gotten better. Mm-hmm. The means have gotten better. And it's somewhat also true of Colorado's 14ers. Mm-hmm. Everyone now has a four-wheel drive vehicle. They can bumpity-bump up to a higher trailhead than we used to go with our regular cars. The Colorado 14er Initiative, bless their soul, has made trails where before we were wrecking the environment. Mm -hmm. That's a good thing, but it's made the 14ers easier, more accessible. Mm -hmm. There's an old Earth First adage Remember Earth First? Yeah, long yeah, time ago. Yeah, long time ago. Yeah. Access means impact. Mm-hmm. It's true. Well, and it makes it uh. that much. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it so when we talk about that skill level that you needed to know to go up on the fort, on even on the flat irons when you were yeah. a kid back in Boulder, that you really did have to have a skill set that allowed you um, to do it safely <laughs> once you got your lecture. But now when we have paths paved for us and we have routes in that are clearly marked, it, we don't have to be as expertise with, you know, being able to read trail signs, being able to know which direction we're going and reading the mountains. The equipment can be that much easier. And, you know, I've seen people going up mountains in flip-flops because the trails right. are that much, that accessible. Right. It changes the whole experience. It, it's, it, it does. And a, another big piece of that, at least for Colorado, Mm -hmm. and to a certain degree Everest, and let's take Everest first, Mm -hmm. we now have spot weather forecasts. Mm. In the old days, you sniffed the air and you put your wet finger to Mm -hmm. see which way the wind was blowing, and you looked around to see what storms might be coming. Mm -hmm. Now, every day, you can get spot forecasts for every thousand feet up the mountain. Mm-hmm. from base camp to the summit for the next several days. Amazing. And yeah. they're amazingly accurate. Um, that 
changes the equation because you can better figure the weather. And the weather is king. Oh, absolutely. If, at least certainly on Everest. If the weather's bad, stay away. Mm-hmm. Go down. Stay low. Well, even on the 14ers. Even on get, the 14ers. You get stuck yeah. in a, a snowstorm or a lightning storm, yeah, and there's like no place Prince, to hide. Yeah. Yeah. Prince, Prince needed a better weather forecast. Mm-hmm. So it reduces the risk, which increases accessibility, because you know that you can go on a sunny day versus a stormy day. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that we have in, in Colorado and other western states is the GPS. Mm-hmm. You can have a GPS to five decimal places, which is good to three feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Four decimal places will get you 30 feet within where you want to be. And I joke that, well, now there's an app. If you get more than 10 feet off the trail, it'll beep at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's true. And I know that I certainly, I, you turn me around a paper bag and I won't be able to get my way out. So it's the only way that someone like me can even get on the mountain is to have something that helps keep me safe outside of my own skill level. And it's a crutch. And it definitely changes the way that we can address the challenge. Right. The electronics and Mm -hmm. social media is a big piece of this. Everybody has everything to say about it. Mm -hmm. You can get not just one or two reports. You can get one or 200 reports. Mm -hmm. Well, I've got to say something about that. If (laughs) If you ask 10 people for directions from here, to the nearest grocery store, you're mm-hmm. going to get 10 different answers. Yeah. <clears throat> I hate, to, since no names are being named here, about half of them are worse than nothing. <laughs> You'd be better off if you hadn't heard those reports. Yeah. Two or three of them, they're, they're useful, but you have to filter them. Mm-hmm. One or two would be good as is, and you can actually follow that and get to the store. So you have to know the source of your trip reports. Mm-hmm. Who said this? And how well they're informed themselves. And so after you get to know the authors of the trip reports, you mm-hmm. can make better use of them. And of course, you also have a series of, of books and reports about how to approach the 14ers and approach the, um, the hikes and trails here in Colorado. Yeah. What is the... The purpose and goal that you take to writing these books and in, in supporting good, climbers. Good question. Hikers. Back in the fifties, when I started climbing, we would climb a peak. We had conquered it. Mm-hmm. We had mastered it. Done. Scratch it off the list forever, never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. Well, we were young, impetuous. <laughs> then it became important to do the peaks with a friend. Mm-hmm. Then it became important to be able to lead a friend or maybe a group of friends. Mm-hmm. And that, if you couldn't lead, mm-hmm. if you aren't on the sharp end, you ain't climbing. That's an old <laughs> quote. Yeah. It became important to include other people mm-hmm. as I got more experience. And then that finally morphed to books because in order to reach a million people, you got to write it down. Yeah. <laughs> you can only <laughs> yeah. get so many people one-on-one. Right, right. Yeah. <clears throat> and so I guess the books grew out of a love of sharing. That's beautiful. And you think it's easy to write directions. No, it's not. I'm a math major. I'm a 
computer programmer where if you put a comma where you're supposed to put a period, mm -hmm. the program's going to break and an airplane might fly into a mountain, stuff oh like that. Yeah, I'm no detail-oriented. Yeah. It took me 20 years to really figure out how to write directions. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Any it, tips and tricks that you honed along the way? Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Not as easy as it looks. <laughs> I think I finally got there, and that's why my books, for the most part, are pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. To that, I must say, I can write 10,000 numbers correctly. If I miss one, mm -hmm. everyone's going to tell me about it. <laughs> that's true. So if you're reading these books and you see that there's an inaccuracy, you know now where to find Jerry. And you just let him know. Is Email that... me and say, uh, <laughs> we noticed that this coordinate is off in the third decimal place. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Constructive criticism is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So let me know if you spot an error. Also, things change. Mm -hmm. When I started out, I said, well, the routes never change. This right at once, I got it forever. No, things do change. Uh, the Forest Service has rerouted trails to mm -hmm. get them away from wetlands. They've closed trails, gates on roads magically mm -hmm. appear. Oops. <laughs> I can't go through there. <laughs> Stuff changes. Um, some routes are just not good anymore. Mm -hmm. I have this classic designation. Well, it's classic for me but it may not be classic for everybody. For the most part, the classics are classic. Mm -hmm. I had one occasion where I rated the north face of Little Bear. I put a classic on that because I had such a great time doing it. Yeah. A long time ago. Oops, another party tried it in the modern time, and there was a fatality oh my goodness. on mm -hmm. that route. And I got an email from one of the companions that mm -hmm. had suffered through the, the fatality, and he said, well, now, why did you put classic on that route? It wasn't so good. Yeah. And I thought hard about that, and I finally removed the word classic from that route. But I didn't remove the route. Mm -hmm. The route, whether you like it or not, exists. Yeah. <laughs> so when you think about that designation of classic and what it meant, to you and how you enjoyed climbing it versus another group of climbers and and then their their experience with it, what became that difference between your motivation and then the decision to change that? It's That's a good question. It's tricky. I can't possibly mm -hmm. know everybody and know their experience mm -hmm. and know how they're going to react in a tough situation. It's mm -hmm. impossible to know all of that. So that's up to the individual. Mm -hmm. I get emails every week, this and that, different things. I got a classic email it's a, from somebody in the Midwest. Hi, Jerry, I've just bought your 14er book. Can you recommend some easy 14ers near Denver? Mm -hmm. I said, uh, well, read the book. <laughs> you already did the work. <laughs> uh, it's tricky. Mm -hmm. Beerstadt has been proclaimed the, the most popular 14er mm -hmm. in Colorado. It's everyone's first go. Because it's close to Denver. 
You can drive high to Guanella Pass. Oh, the road to Guanella Pass has been paved. Mm -hmm. Access is yeah. easier. There's a new parking lot. Oops, it's not big enough. Cars up and down mm -hmm. the road. I just heard uh, something like a thousand people were on the top of Bierstadt on wow. a recent recent summer weekend. And, and what a startling reality for someone who wants to go climb to get away and get away from the people and away well, from Denver. And now you're on a crowded summit. Yeah, <laughs> you can, you can, uh, whole conversation. A lot of people assume that they go to the mountains to get away from people. Mm -hmm. Well, if that's your motivation, mm -hmm. you need to go to less popular peaks. Mm -hmm. Colorado has, depending how you count, 50-some 14ers, but it has 584 13ers ranked, wow. 10 times as many. Mm -hmm. And in particular, if you go to the lower 13ers, you're going to find solitude mm -hmm. most all of the time especially if you move farther from Denver. <laughs> yeah. So again, you have the juxtaposition of the glamorous topping of 14ers versus the gritty and determined work to find solitude and get further away from what the mainstream knows. Yes, um, there's other things to talk about. Mm -hmm. When I see 100 people marching up the Grays Peak Trail to mm -hmm. climb a 14er, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. The mountains need a loving user group mm -hmm. because they're competing interests. Yeah. That if there was no loving user group, mining, logging, development, mm -hmm. to name three big competing interests, could take over. And Grays Peak could be nothing but houses and cabins and keep out signs. Think you, could, you couldn't go there at mm -hmm. all. Or a mine might mine the entire mountain into oblivion. Mm -hmm. People say, oh, we're loving the mountains to death. Well, if that were physically true, then Colorado would look like Kansas. <laughs> but it's not yeah. that bad. Yeah. Not that bad. Anyway, if you want solitude, there's plenty of solitude in Colorado. If mm -hmm. you want to do all the 14ers, that's a good goal. And I get mm -hmm. the question, why 14ers? It's a good question. We have, there's 53 hard-ranked 14ers. There's 58 officially named 14ers. Mm -hmm. So you can choose how you want to count. These days, a lot of people are pursuing the list of 58. Mm -hmm. That's fine. Because the officially named ones that aren't ranked are close to the other ones. Mm -hmm. It's a convenient number. Mortals can do 58 peaks. Mm -hmm. If you say, well, go ahead and do all the 13ers, the magic number is 637 ranked peaks in Colorado over 13,000 feet. Sounds a little daunting. Ten, ten <laughs> times more. Yeah. That's a daunting number. Most people are not going to sign up for that. Mm -hmm. I did it, but it took most of my life. <laughs> <laughs> so I was doing other things. Um, it's a convenient number. Colorado has, if you're living in the Midwest, in mm -hmm. Chicago, or in the near south, Dallas, say, it's the place to come. Mm -hmm. California has 13 hard-ranked 14ers. Washington, of course, has Rainier. 
much smaller numbers. Mm-hmm. Colorado has the 14ers. We got it, baby. Yeah. <laughs> this is the place to come. When I was working on the book, I'd go up a non-standard route, and I'd sit on the summit as long as I could manage, mm-hmm. storms depending, and I'd talk to people, and I'd read the register. Where were the people from? About half the people that climb our 14ers are from out of state. Really? Usually Midwest. Mm-hmm. If you live in Chicago, hopefully you got a job that pays enough money that you can hop a plane and come out here and bag 14ers, <laughs> rent a car, and up you go. Yeah. Rent a four-wheel drive, and up you go. There's a lot of that. Uh, it's accessible to a good third of the country. We don't get so many people from the East Coast. It's a bigger distance. They've Mm -hmm. got their own attractions. The West Coast, most people living on the West Coast, Colorado doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) They've got the Sierras. They've got the Cascades. They've got the coast, water sports. They've got plenty to do Mm -hmm. on their own. But here, we can draw a lot from the Midwest, and we have quite the attraction. Amazing. So we have quite a draw Mm -hmm. for good reason. Two-thirds of our 14ers are walk-ups. That's class one or class two, which mortals can do. Mm -hmm. A lot of the California 14ers are pretty tough. They're way back in the Sierra. you got to backpack in, and then you got to climb rocks. Mm -hmm. A third of our 14ers are a little tougher. The very toughest ones like Capital, Pyramid, the Bells, they're tough enough to dissuade some people. Well, a lot of people don't care. They'll do mm-hmm. the easy ones. There's still plenty to yeah. do. There's, there's no limit here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's accessible to mortals. Mm-hmm. And I have a theory that everybody has an Everest. Mm-hmm. There's the picture of the mountain. It'll perhaps draw you and perhaps repel you. Mm-hmm. You may choose another Everest. Everybody, but everybody, most everybody, not everybody, everybody, but most people choose something in their life to inspire them, to guide them, to fulfill them. It may have nothing to do with mountains. It typically mm-hmm. doesn't. It could be raising a family. It could be getting this particular job, getting mm-hmm. that raise. You name it. Uh, as soon as mountains enter the picture, lists become a good substitute Everest. Mm-hmm. Think about it. If you climb the 14ers, that's an Everest. Yeah. You've done it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> but I like your point that you bring up that the, our lives are they're richer with purpose. And whether that purpose is of um, you know, physical skill and climbing Everest or climbing 14 14ers or um, whatever some of the other um, common um, goals are here in, in Colorado, or you know, the family and the job and the home. We need to have something driving us, right? And it's not even so much attaining that Everest, but it's the work that goes into all of the effort along the way, right? <laughs> I like to think about the Dalai Lama. What's the Dalai Lama's Everest? Hmm. Peace, <laughs> tranquility, yeah. He does it very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good Everest to have. When we went to Montesluz in 1978, we were the first American team to go to that mountain. Mm-hmm. It's one of the 8,000-meter peaks in Nepal. We wondered 
allowed and often if a monk might have walked up there mm-hmm. at some point in the past mm-hmm. with their mukluk boots and their staff of wood and I don't know. We may never know. We probably will never know if that was done. Mm-hmm. But monks might be drawn upwards for their own reasons. Mm-hmm. Could they have, in fact, gone to the top? Well, technically, maybe not. That's a stretch. But they might have gone high. But still that aspiration to go the upwards. aspiration. Mm-hmm. There are monk camps where they run every day. Mm-hmm to the point where their bodies poop out and they can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's there's interesting stuff there. Being a monk is not easy. Oh. Well, <laughs> and I think um, attaining those greater goals, you know, when you really put the effort into it, no matter what it is, it's not easy. And that it's finding that grit and that purpose that really moves us through. I had a yeah. climbing buddy who I climbed Mount Lucania with and went mm-hmm. to Peru with, Jerry Halpern, he decided to go to become a monk for at least a while. Mm-hmm. And he came back later, a year or two later, and we talked to him, and he said, it was really tough. <laughs> he said, you got to... What was the hardest part for him? <laughs> it's cold. You don't sleep. You don't eat. <laughs> You've got to yeah. chant and work every day. That's mm-hmm. stuff that's not that easy. you got to memorize things. Mm-hmm. He said it was actually, and he was a tough guy. Yeah. He said it was very, very tough to be at that camp. Amazing. Yeah. Enlightenment comes hard. Well, so before I let you go today, um, will you tell me where can we find your books? I've been told that they are the favorite at REI, that when people want to hand them out. But where can we find your books online? Or well, online, um, my guidebooks will sell at REI, mm-hmm. hopefully, depending which REI you're at. Mm-hmm. 14ers and 13ers should be in any REI. Mm-hmm. Indian Peaks will be here in the front range. My book, Flatiron Classics, Guide to the mm-hmm. Flatirons of Boulder, a little more specialized. That will be more in Boulder. Mm-hmm. Not likely to find it on the western slope. My narratives, I started out writing... My goal, my dream, was to write my stories Mm -hmm. and inspire people. Well, I got sidetracked writing guidebooks (laughs) because that 14er book, darn the luck, it sold. (laughs) Still is. What happens when things are a success and they run away from you? (laughs) My narratives, people buy, people want to do it themselves, and Mm -hmm. they want a book that will help them do their thing. Well, Mm -hmm. a guidebook helps them. It doesn't tell them why to go or how to go, it tells them where to go mm-hmm. and speeds them on their way. Well, that's a help. My narratives, what I had hoped would help, not so much. And mm-hmm. it, it's across the spectrum. Pe- mer- narratives are not selling today. Mm. Interesting. The publishers tell you that. <laughs> and, and, and they won't publish my narratives. Mm-hmm. So I self-published most all of my storybooks. Mm-hmm. I sell them on my website, summitsite.com. Go to Bookland, and it's Mm -hmm. all right there. You can buy my narratives from me. Darn the luck, you got to pay postage. (laughs) (laughs) I don't do free shipping like Amazon. I I can't afford it. Mere mortals mortals compared to Amazon. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now that Amazon is taking over 
the world, you can also buy my narratives on Amazon. And they'll cut you a better deal than I can, but it, but it won't be signed. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good perk that comes with paying for your own postage. <laughs> right. <laughs> Amazing. So it's all available out there um, one way or another. <laughs> to find you on there. And we'll definitely link the website in our show notes as well. Yeah. And, and then finally, how would you like others to think about taking on their own Everest? What's that big takeaway for you? Be careful. <laughs> people, people ask, do you have any advice? And I yeah. say, yeah, don't fall down. <laughs> it's pretty simple. Yeah. It used to be true. There's a publication that comes out every year with the American Alpine Journal. It's the Accidents in North American Mountaineering. They summarize accidents, mostly in the States, but also Canada and some Mexico. I read it every year because mm -hmm. I want to understand what mistakes people are making and how they wiggle out of a tough situation. Mm -hmm. It's good reading for me anyway. Most people don't read that. There's an old saw, an adage that most accidents happen on the descent when you're coming down and you're tired. Mm -hmm. That's less true than it used to be. Really? Think about it. It takes you longer to go up. Mm -hmm. Descents are faster, so maybe two-thirds to one-third. There's more time spent on the ascent. Mm -hmm. The ascents are becoming tougher and tougher and tougher. So more and more accidents are happening on the way up. The number one cause of accidents is falling. Pretty simple. That's yeah. why I say, if you've got any advice, yeah, don't fall down. <laughs> <laughs> The second thing to think about on a Colorado 14er is lightning. The biggest mm -hmm. threat we have in summer in Colorado is lightning. Mm -hmm. It's just plain good old physics and physics wins. You can't outrun a storm. Mm -hmm. uh, you can choose to not be there when the lightning strikes there. And that's some, sometimes tough. Another old saw is be off the summit by noon. Mm -hmm. That's hard to do. If you can do it, great. You may have to start middle of the night to yep. do that mm -hmm. on some of the tougher peaks. Um, if you see a really bad storm coming, you have the option of turning around mm -hmm. and going down. I've been running down a 14er, top speed to escape <laughs> a storm, and seen people wandering up in their flip-flops <laughs> completely unconcerned that bothers me yeah lack of awareness of the weather mm -hmm. the weather's in charge <laughs> not you <laughs> well and what i love about where you started there is um that you you take the time to read about mistakes and then when you were talking about your second ascent on everest you were thinking about all the things that could go wrong and and planning to overcome and it speaks to a level of determination and um awareness of reality around you. Right. We cannot es escape the circumstances we're in, no matter um, how unexpected it is that your Sherpa's mother would pass mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. our phones and our apps that we know that storm is coming, we can still choose to ignore it and go up unprepared. Right. Right. Having that awareness and, and accepting the circumstances you can't control and then doing your best not to fall down feels like really great advice for life as well. I th yes, it is. <laughs> I think... Now more than ever, 
people need to not just touch nature, they need to bond with nature mm-hmm. and the environment. Get out there and scuff your feet in the dirt, even if it's just a little bit. Mm-hmm. We tend to live on our screens. And our, everybody you see out there running has got headphones in, mm-hmm. listening to music, uh, and so on. The best thing to do is just always choose adventure and get out there. <laughs> and don't fall down. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Jay. Thank you for coming and spending your time with us. I know that we're lucky to have you on our side of the mountains today. Uh, um, but have fun with your rest of the time well, here in Well, thanks for having me. I can talk forever. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, and if anyone is interested, I know um, by the time this podcast comes out, Jerry's engagements here in Denver will have already passed. Um, but I know that he ha- does more extensive public speaking. And is there a way that um, our listeners can find out where they'll find you and where you're talking these days? Well, mm-hmm. uh, this Operation Always Choose Adventures mm-hmm. publicizes many, not all, but most mm-hmm. of my events are run through Always Choose Adventures. Mm-hmm. You can get tickets through Eventbrite mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It's it's out there. Okay. I'm well, not I'm not hiding. I'm not hard to find. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> we'll make sure that everybody has the best access to find you. Okay. Wonderful. Thanks again, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm.